God is good. All the time. God is great. All the time. Amen and amen and amen. Can I ask you to thank you? Well, normally this is a part of the service where I say, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up to 2 Samuel chapter 23. But here's the thing. I almost put seven translations in front of you this morning to try and dig into this passage well. And I was failing miserably in both time, you know that's a struggle, but then also in quality. And so at the last minute, I kind of bit the bullet and I have printed out sheets for you. So Matt and Mark are going to come around the room and give you Dale Ralph Davis's translation of this passage. So today, you can add this into the back as a handout for your Bibles. I promise you it is scripture, and you are free and responsible to take his translation and compare it to the Bible you use on a daily basis. I think as you do that, you will notice two overwhelming things. One is this passage has a lot of little pieces, like a child's puzzle, to be put together. But each translation assembles the portrait with these pictures slightly differently. They never come to different conclusions. They never have a different testimony, but they do have a different way of arranging the puzzle pieces. And at times in the Hebrew, that is a challenge. Today's text, verses 1 through 7 in 2 Samuel 23, does pose textual challenges for how it is to be assembled. So you have in front of you a great Old Testament scholar's personal translation. And that's the basis upon which we're going to go through the text this morning. But hear me clearly. This is God's word. And we are to hear it and to receive it as such. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 7. And these are the last words of David, oracle of David, son of Jesse. Yes, oracle of the man who has been raised up high, the anointed one of the God of Jacob and the singer of Israel's songs. The spirit of Yahweh has spoken with me and his word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has said to me, the rock of Israel has spoken, ruler over mankind, righteous, ruler, fear God. And as the light of morning, when the sun rises, morning without clouds, because of brightness, because of rain, grass from the earth. Indeed, is not my house like this with God? For an everlasting covenant he ordained for me, a covenant fully stated 
and secured for all my welfare and all his pleasure. Indeed, will he not make it spring up? But the godless are like thorns, all of them tossed away. To be sure, don't grab them with the hand. But the man who approaches them arms himself with iron or wooden spear, and they're totally burned up with fire on the spot. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, as we gather in this room today, it is to sing praises to you. It is that we might know you more today than we did yesterday. That we might know your truest and deepest and highest purposes for all of us, individually, in this local body, and across the globe. Father, we pray this morning that as we delve into these last words of David, that we would see in them a prophecy about the future of your kingdom in its final estate. So come, O Lord, and give us a glimpse, a flash before our eyes that we might see you at the end of days, at the end of time, being worshiped and glorified. May we get a glimpse today, we ask, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and all God's people agree. Amen. Amen. This psalm comes immediately on the heels of a longer psalm. As we saw last week, 50 verses that David penned in chapter 22. And those verses, the thrust of that psalm, took us backwards to see God's faithfulness in raising David up, but more than that, in raising up his kingdom under David's rule. And it was filled with praise and insight, reminders and joys. David looked backwards at the faithfulness of God in establishing David's rule over his people. Well, here we are in the very next chapter, dealing with a psalm. Chapter 23 begins with a psalm, labeled and presented as David's last official words. But the thrust of this psalm is both shorter, by a great degree, and different directionally. This psalm looks forward to the consummation of God's kingdom in the future. David has a lot to say as he explores God's faithfulness in the past. David has little to say by volume, but enormous truths and certainties to express about the coming nature of God's kingdom. So remember the directional thrust as we go through this. And it is very clear. The beginning of verse 1 leaves no doubt these are the last words of David. Earlier this week, I spent some time trying to find awesome 
last words from different folks throughout human history, expecting poets and, you know, orators to have crafted final thoughts as they exhale final breaths. Most of them were pretty pitiful. I'm Googling and Googling and Googling, and some of them are a little bit profound here or there, but not worthy of our time. There were many, moms, take heart. Your babies might leave your nest, but in their dying breath, they usually cry out for you. There's an astonishing amount of people whose final singular word is mama or mum or mom, and they expire. Sometimes we have written records of the last word. Sometimes people write cards or notes, give a final address at the hour of retirement, and never have public regards thereafter. As we come to the end of the book of Samuel, how many months have we spent on this? Yeah, many. I don't really want to know right now, but plenty. Over the course of all that time, in all this truth, in the presentation of all of this story in redemptive history, this is coming to climax as David's final official words. And he begins, Oracle of David, son of Jesse. Yes, Oracle of the man who has been raised up high to that kingly office. The anointed one of the God of Jacob and the singer of Israel's songs. I actually loved the way Eugene Peterson translates this. Eugene Peterson says, and the greatest singer in Israel. In other words, they're driving at the idea here that David is everybody's favorite pop star. The original Beatles, all in one person. He is both singer and writer. Does that mean we have to treat him like Taylor Swift? Maybe we're free to treat him a little bit like Taylor Swift. Both singer and songwriter. But do you see the weight of this moment starting to build? King David's final words. A very oracle of God. The God who raised up Israel out of Egypt. The God who raised David up to the office from shepherd to king. The one he anointed in the lineage of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The great singer and author. And if that's not high enough, he adds verse 2, the spirit of Yahweh, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, he has spoken with me his word upon my tongue. Do you see the six-time repetition 
in this introduction. One, the oracle of David. Two, the oracle of the man who has been raised up high. Three, the spirit of Yahweh speaks by me. Four, his word is upon my tongue. Five, the God of Israel has said. And six, the rock of Israel has spoken. This text is in no hurry. Catch that. There is a deep and abiding invitation to slow down. God is not in a hurry in communicating this text to us. Listen to the words as they build. Listen to the words as they develop. These are deliberate and slightly odd for David. They're not overly emotional. These are very vivid images, very purified singular thoughts put forth in deliberate connection. Listen for the overwhelming emphasis at the origin, at the beginning. An emphasis upon divine inspiration. David is saying God's word, God's word, God's word, God's word, God's word, God's word. And as all my Connect kids know, repetition is for... Come on, you guys can do better than that. Repetition is for? You see what I did right there? You're welcome. This is an oracle. It's a divine message. What follows is not David's hunch. It's not David's guess. It is David's supreme and final and greatest hope. It's an oracle of God. A divine message for just the kings that follow? Or is there hope for the people to be ruled by imperfect kings? I am very convinced it's the latter. What follows in this is divine decree. And it is Yahweh's promise to the people of Yahweh's kingdom. Listen sixfold to the origin of these promises. The God of Israel has said to me, the rock, a translation from 200 years ago, refers to this moment as the God of Israel has said to me, the rock mountain of Israel has spoken. So that we don't begin to shrink what it means that God is a rock for all of his people to stand upon. And this is what 
God says in David's last words, ruler over mankind, righteous, ruler, fear God. We had a six-fold introduction for that? Come on, stop in your religious zone. Listen to what is being said here. Does that not feel bland to you? Vanilla to you? Hey, kings, like do it rightly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How many times is David eloquent in the Psalms? Is David apologizing for God because God speaks kind of bland? So like, no, really, you have to pay attention to this. I'm really sorry, but it's an oracle of God. God said this. You have to hear it as God said it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so Is that what's happening here? Are you not underwhelmed? Oh, ruler of mankind, righteous. Ruler, fear God. Is that not applicable to all of us? Kings are the only ones that this is going to be true for? That this command holds sway over? Isn't this obvious? Kings should judge rightly, act in the interests of their own people. What's happening here? Well, I'm convinced that David is anticipating the future of God's kingdom in its eschatological fulfillment with its divine Messiah ruling. This is a kingdom that David sees. Notice, this is not ruling over Israel. Whom is being ruled over? Who is the population of this kingdom? Mankind. This is not just for Israel, those under Abraham. No, this traces its roots back even further. If all are fallen in Adam, then we need a new Adam. We need a future king who will rule not just over Israel, but over all the world. I believe that David is holding tightly to the joyous coming of the Messiah. The one long promised, who will come from David's line. David's ruler here over mankind refers to this future Messiah. That the Messiah will have both godly fear, obedience, and personal righteousness, faithfulness. And that in that moment there will be two outcomes. 
There will be an outcome of revival and refreshing, deliverance and renewing. That the vitality of his goodness, wisdom, and power will be at work in his kingdom and the people thereof. But also, not just a work of salvation, but also a work of judgment. The coming kingdom involves restoration and destruction. Listen to the imagery as it unfolds. Verse 4, and as the light of morning, like when the sun first rises, and it's a morning without clouds, because of the brightness of God's sunshine and because of the rain that he provides, grass will spring forth upon the earth. Is that not deep and powerful imagery of reviving and refreshing? How many of us cherish the comforting thought that darkness is dissipated as light is present? Many of us long for the darkness of mind or heart or circumstance to be beat back and pushed away by the light of hope love, and truth. This is a reviving, a refreshing, a renewing image that God's people in a world of uncertainty, somebody say amen, in a world of uncertainty and ever-changing circumstances, there is certainty. There is kingdom certainty. Might not be circumstantial certainty or momentary certainty, but there is, if we see through God's eyes and we draw our ear to his voice, we will hear kingdom certainty that a day is coming where all darkness is removed, where all goodness is fulfilled. That there is a day and a place where God's people will live without sin, without sorrow, without suffering. Speed the day, O oh Lord, yes? There is a refreshing, life-giving salvation at the end of days. But because of Christ, that end of days power, that end of days goodness, that end of days wisdom has been brought into time and history and space. And we can see God's goodness and wisdom and power. It was given to us in the Spirit's work, providing all that the law would demand of us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus in time and space and history, but also as the Holy Spirit makes us alive together with Christ, 
We don't just wait for the day of renewal. We live every day in the ongoing renewal that God gives. This is essential for us as we would see David's final last word. The people of God will be refreshed like the world when the sun rises. Like the hungry bellies knowing that the rain that falls outside is what puts bread on the table at night to eat. And Israel is a wilderness. Israel is often a barren land. This is worth the moment. Think about the promise that God leads his people to where the grass grows at the water's edge. How many of us, what psalm am I referencing? Psalm 1, the first one. How often do we picture the plains of America, lush and overflowing with wild, vibrant grass? Take a look at Israel. Pull up a picture. Google can be your friend as much as it can be your enemy. That place is not lush like the middle of America is. In fact, most of it is rocky and sandy. This is why their only hope is the oil that's way underground and not the farmland that they don't have to produce the crops they need to eat. The wilderness of Israel is where David sees the promise of lush grass, fertile soil, being given to the promised land. In other words, not all land on earth is the same. Just like not all people on earth are the same. The promise of lush grass is weird to us because we get mad having to mow it. And they couldn't feed all their livestock for lack of it. The gospel brings salvation, redemption, refreshing, renewing, vitality. But then if you jump to verse 6, you get its complement. Not salvation, but judgment. Listen to verses 6 and 7. But the godless are like thorns, all of them tossed away. To be sure, nobody grabs them with their bare hand. How many of you grab thorns with your bare hands? You don't, right? Or you do once, and then you don't again. So if you know about thorns, and you're preparing for thorns, you put gloves on, yes? You bring a tool with you, a rake or a hoe. That's the with iron or wooden spear. It's a tool, an instrument. What's the final estate for these thorns? They will be immediately gathered up, thrown in the fire, and burned. Everybody happy? This is 
one of the least popular biblical truths in the church today. Yes? Truth divides. Scripture says that start to finish. David's great hope here is that there will no longer be required battle and war to protect and provide for the people of God. He envisions a warless day, a sorrowless future, so that immoral, corrupt, oppressive, power-grabbing, power-grubbing people will be separated eternally from the people of God. They will be separated eternally from any benevolence of God. Sometimes I hear people say, well, hell is a place where God is not present. And it sounds quickly good, but it's fundamentally false. Here's the problem. Sheol, hell, is a place where God's wrathful presence is found. It's the removal of the goodness of God, not the removal from any presence of God. That would be Lord of the Flies level anarchy. This doctrine is not popular for most of us. And yet... Does not your heart cry out when you see an injustice? When you see evil and villainy, when you see people and systems designed to oppress, designed to abuse, designed and beloved for its villainy, does not your heart scream Oh God, where is justice? Oh God, where is your truth at work here? Throw down these wicked men. Remove these wicked practices. May slavery be abolished from the earth. May murder be abolished from the earth. May theft and oppression, may it be abolished from the earth. Yes? Cannot truth reign in one place? Cannot all goodness be gathered together to spring forth life eternal? We should herald this doctrine more. Not just because God says it six times that this is his word. We should herald this as a loving warning to those whose evil seems unchecked, unopposed. David is not here making a political plea. May the, the kings of Israel be righteous. No, no, David is crying out to the righteous king to come and do the threshing floor work of weeding out that which is life-giving and the chaff that leads only to decay. David is viewing in the future 
the hope that we have in understanding the past. There's about 60 scriptural cross-references I could make this morning. But I figured if I was going to give you a new translation, I only get one cross-reference. Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42. The Son of Man, Jesus speaking of himself in the future, will send out his angels... And they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We do not entertain this holy decree and doctrine lightly. We esteem it rightly by mourning its consequences that we ourselves deserve. When we talk about the fires of hell, the furnace of weeping and gnashing of teeth, we must embrace the reality that left to ourselves, this would be our final estate. Apart from his mercy, all belong. All have citizenship of. The condemned and damned. At the end of days, at the return of Christ, there will be a great separation between sheep and goat. But if we listen carefully to Jesus in John 10, we will hear him say and celebrate that sheep status precedes faith. It's not a response to faith where you can become a sheep. Instead, because you are God's eternally decreed, he has had affection for you before there was before. You were always to be his. And in that goodness, in that glory, we must marvel that vitality and salvation are our certain future. Because the one who speaks in Matthew 13 dies and rises again in Matthew's gospel's conclusion. David's hope is of this righteous future for mankind being remade in the new Adam. When I think about last words, final thoughts, listen to verse 5. Indeed, David says, is not my house like this with God? He sees the renewing work. He sees the refreshing and the reviving work of God. 
And he claims and remembers that an everlasting covenant God has ordained or set apart for David. This is a covenant fully stated. 2 Samuel 7, if you want to read it this week. 2 Samuel 7, this is a covenant fully stated and fully secured. And it brings, according to David, all of his welfare and all pleasure. In the union we have with God, there is great godly pleasure for God's people. And indeed, David says, will he not make it spring up? Barren lands becoming fertile soil. Clouded skies being made clear. David's great hope is the certainty of God's faithfulness in his past as a precursor to the certainty of God's future faithfulness, mercy, and goodness. When I think about last words, my beloved historic theologian, the great J. Gresham Machen, in his late 50s, mid-50s, Machen took a train out to the Midwest in Chicago and North Dakota. He set himself up in one winter with a hundred speaking engagements. He was unmarried after all. And on his way out, he goes in a terrible storm. And the wind and the slush, it gets in him and he develops pneumonia which will lead to his death January 1st, 1937. But before he died, he had a beloved brother in the faith, the great John Murray. And Machen was Murray's teacher and then colleague, but I think they were friends all the way through. And he dispatches a telegram to give hope in his last words. And they're the last words we have from him. He gave us so many incredible ones. But hear the joy of a man who knows his God and his death is imminent. He simply writes to Murray, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. I believe that to be the greatest last word in all of human history. Sorry, David. I know you gave us an oracle of God, but I think they agree, do they not? That it is the active obedience of Christ. It is the active earning of all the blessings of God's decree and demands of his law. That Jesus lives in and under and overcomes and gives. It is the active obedience of Christ. And remember, Jesus' will is supremely active even as he rests upon the cross as if resting is really what he was experiencing. If Jesus is not vicarious to us, 
If he is not our substitute, we have no hope of heaven. We have no hope of flourish. There is no future but fire and burn. The theological witness of this text is that the consummation of God's kingdom is a divine certainty because it rests, it depends upon God's fulfilling his own demands and applying in mercy all that he has gathered up to distribute to us. In other words, we agree with the great St. Augustine whose prayer was simply, Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. You're God, you make the rules. Command whatever you will, but give us what you demand from us. And he did. Jesus says, it is finished. And the Father says, rise in newness of life. Speed the day you return, that we may see you face to face. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank, we're thankful that you have not left us cloaked in darkness, that you have seen fit in your goodness, mercy, and power to pour out the blessings of your faithfulness to all of us who are sinners and yet Christ has died for us. He has lived for us. And the life that he has, he gives. And the death he bore, he gives. Father, we are so grateful this morning for Jesus and for the promise of a day when you will lead your people in righteousness, that you as ruler over all mankind, men, women, and children from every tribe, from every nation, will be gathered together under your righteous rule, that we would rightly join you in our awe and fear of God, the only hope for salvation the only hope for restoration, the only hope of eternal life. It is to you that we ask these things in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, 